Good evening. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery One left on its half billion mile voyage to Jupiter. This marked the first manned attempt to reach this distant planet. Earlier this afternoon, the World Tonight recorded an interview with the crew of Discovery at a distance of 80 million miles from Earth. Our reporter, Martin Amer, speaks to the crew. The sixth member of the Discovery crew was not concerned about the problems of hibernation, for he was the latest result in machine intelligence, the HAL 9000 computer. Good afternoon, Hal. How's everything going? Good afternoon, Mr. Amer. Everything is going extremely well. Hal, you have an enormous responsibility on this mission. In many ways, perhaps the greatest responsibility of any single mission element. Does this ever cause you any lack of confidence? Let me put it this way, Mr. Amer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. Two thousand one, a space odyssey. I'm Wes, and I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. This week's episode, we begin as many people end their thoughts of this movie, thinking about. Our favorite, most indelible, some would say the most human character of the movie. The computer, the HAL 9000. Bishop takes Knight's pawn. I'm sorry, Frank, I think you missed it. Queen to Bishop 3. Bishop takes Queen. Knight takes Bishop. Mate. Thank you for a very enjoyable game. HAL 9000, not named, in fact, after IBM, as urban legends would have it. Nevertheless, he does have an interesting link to the history of computing that IBM was a part of. But first, there's a little news. You may have uh, seen in the trades or in advertising in the last uh, month or so as we approach awards season in the movie industry, and Kate Blanchett is the star of a hot new picture taking the festivals by storm. It's called Tar. T-A with an accent, not an aigu, R. T-A-R, Tar. And it's the, a, a biopic of a composer played by Kate Blanchett based on a, a true story. The director of that movie, Todd Field, may uh, be recognizable to some as the director of In the Bedroom, which was a big Oscars contender in 2004, and Little Children in 2006 with Ewan McGregor and Kate Winslet. Yeah, this is his third directorial effort. Congratulations to him. Wonderful. What does this have to do with us, you may ask? Well, have you ever seen Eyes Wide Shut? There was a guy in that movie who played the piano, who gets in touch with Tom Cruise, their old medical school buddies, and he's got a gig coming up. He's uh, He's got a gig for a crazy event. He doesn't know much about it, but if Tom wants to find a way to sneak along, he won't say anything. More power to him. But he doesn't know how to get there because uh, he's going to be blindfolded. Oh, my. One, two. One, two, three, four. That's it for tonight, ladies and gentlemen. On the bass, Mr. Larry McVeigh. On the drums, Kip Fleming, and on the guitar, the one, the only, Mr. Bobby Berman. We hope you enjoyed the music tonight. We're going to be here for the next two weeks, so please do stop by. I'm Nick Nightingale. Good night.
Nightingale. Hey, Bill, you made it. Yeah, listen, I'm sorry. I got here just as you were finishing your last set. Oh, that's all right. The band sucked tonight anyway. <laughs> what are you drinking? Uh, vodka and tonic, please. Thank you. So is this your band? No, it's just a pickup band. Who do you normally play with? Anybody. <laughs> Anywhere. As a matter of fact, I got another gig later tonight. Playing somewhere else tonight? Mm. They only get started there around two. In the village? Um, believe it or not, I don't actually know the address yet. You don't? No, I, it may sound ridiculous, but uh, it's in a different place every time, and I only get it about an hour or so before. Different place every time? So far. And what's the big mystery? Hey, man, I just played the piano. <laughs> Nick, I'm sorry, is there something I'm missing here? <laughs> I play blindfolded. I play blindfolded. <laughs> You're putting me on. No, it's the truth. And the last time, the blindfold wasn't on so well. <laughs> oh, man. Bill, I have seen one or two things in my life, but never. Never anything like this. So, the actor who brings Tom Cruise into the salacious world of Eyes Wide Shut is, in fact, Todd Field, hired by Kubrick for the role. He was so natural, and like all the time with these great actors, once they get into a Kubrick role, they end up acting not like actors. And, you know, whether it's Barry Nelson or Sidney Pollack in Eyes Wide Shut or Todd Field, you end up with people who are known for acting coming across like non-actors somehow. It's that weird way, whether it's through the multiple takes or his directing style or the naturalism of the whole performance comes across somehow to where it always seems like non-actors who are being given the part. But in fact, Todd Field is a very accomplished actor. Got to know Tom Cruise on the set. Tom Cruise asked him what his goals were. And he said, yeah, I've been to film school. And I like that. well, Tom Cruise, you should direct. You should direct. So in a recent interview in the last week or so, doing the press tour for awards season, Todd Field told the story multiple times about how Tom Cruise pushed him into directing on the set of Eyes Wide Shut. So Kubrick's influence continues in movie theaters today. Todd Field talks a little bit in that interview about how Kubrick was an inspiration. And from what I've heard about the film and the way critics have talked about it, there are some influences, hmm. I think. Some Kubrickian sprinkles in there. Mm-hmm. That lack of pulling any punches, that sort of dead-on stare of Kubrick's camera, not looking away, not shying away, not being too embarrassed to see a character fall apart in front of you. Just that naked vulnerability. Really get a lot of that in Clockwork Orange as well. Just this, like you said, totally not shying away from the worst of the worst and really making us sit down and feel it. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion. Yes. Yes, it does happen. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. Two thousand one was an extraordinary breakthrough for the genre. The picture is being done in such a gigantic scope. The centrifuge uh, is so realistic and so unusual. After a while, you begin to forget that you're an actor and you begin to really feel like an astronaut. Working with Stanley Kubrick blew my mind. You just were aware that you were in the presence of genius.
I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. Hal, in a sense, is the machine that controls the whole ship, but he's another crew member from our point of view. We don't think in terms of, oh, I'm, I'm dealing with a computer here. That's a very nice rendering, Dave. Maybe because of that human voice. Uh, I mean, Hal has a perfectly normal inflection when he speaks to us. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. Does Hal have the emotions that he appears to display? Could an artificial intent entity ever get those emotions? Could an artificial entity have a sense of responsibility? Could it care about humans? We don't know the answers to those questions. I and my colleagues love to speculate on such things, but there, there are no proofs. There's no deep understanding of whether a machine ever could have these things. And so the great thing about the film is that it's realistic enough to invite these questions in a very substantive, realistic way. We should do a, a rundown at some point of all of Kubrick's crazy consultants. Oh yeah. Because it's just a, a non-stop hit list. It is. Of, who's who? Yeah. Engineers and just mm -hmm. professionals. and Yeah. We can call it Kubrick's Rolodex. <laughs> I like that. Just seems like something he would use, something he would have with him at all times. Totally, I'm sure he did. Yeah, absolutely. But not just any kind, like a, a locked one where he <laughs> yes, <You're right. laughs> has his own special <laughs> access code and it's all been completely encrypted, which is yeah, uh, yeah, exactly fantastic segue into our really, really interesting topic of HAL 9000. So the story of HAL really begins with the story of computing, period. And the story of computing goes back thousands of years to Pythagoras and earlier then to the abacus and what we had for hundreds of years, which was the human computer. Someone sitting and tabulating figures in the late 18th century, a man named Charles Babbage thought that there might be a little bit more to it. And he created a system where a mechanical device could be used as a calculating machine to perform advanced calculations. He went to the, to the British government and they uh, financed his project, and he was able to create a machine. If anyone's ever played the game Mist, when you're on Mist Island and you reach the and you're going to the mechanical age, you go into the clock tower. That's what this is. When you go into the clock tower in the game of Mist, and you have to program a sequence of numbers to open the device in the game, what you're using is a very primitive, pruned down version of the Charles Babbage computer. A sequence of interlocking gears with rotating numbers, zero to nine, which uh, upon a complex operation could give you, could could work uh, uh, trigonometry. It sounds kind of like a codex. Dude, completely revolutionary, but people didn't know what to do with it. It's like, well, okay, that's, that's cool. What's your point? But one person who saw the potential was Anna, the daughter of George Gordon, Lord Byron, the famous poet. Unbelievable. I should like to think that an irate Jehovah was pointing those arrows of lightning directly at my head, the unbowed head of George Gordon, Lord Byron, England's greatest sinner. And she became the sort of a sponsor and a cheerleader for Babbage, ended up seeing the potential for his machine to the point of actually writing out a series of, shall we say, if-then scenarios which will become important in the history of computing, what you could potentially do with this machine. Now, uh, eventually Babbage got sucked into his own machine like Chaplin in modern times and ended up sort of being eaten by his own um, invention. Uh, part of it was he was ornery, he was um, a great thinker, and so he had some of the temperamental 
eccentricities of other great thinkers. For example, he hated organ grinders. London was full of organ grinders out on the street making money with their mechanical music. And he lobbied for the city of London to ban organ grinders because they were driving him insane while he was trying to think. Wow. So the organ grinder lobby, as it existed, they didn't like Charles Babbage very much, which is only important because at the end of his life, when he was desperately trying to finish his machine, he became ill from the stress of overwork. And when... <laughs> And when they found out that he was on his deathbed, all of the organ grinders in the city descended on his building, cranking their organs as loud as possible. You've got to be kidding me. And eventually drove him to his death. Wow. That is so while brutal. Charles Babbage was being killed to death by the noise of ornery organ grinders, the daughter of Lord Byron uh, is now seen as the world's first computer programmer. Even though all of her if-then scenarios were hypothetical, it was actually the first the first written example of computer processing. Um, strange synchronicity, maybe, but didn't the organ grinders used to have monkeys with them? Yes. Ooh, it's true. That is interesting. Yes. Monkey talking. Hmm. Hmm. We got some he, yeah. monolith-related tasking going on here. Mm -hmm. I think these monkeys may be the, the true uh, ringleaders of the organ grinders. It's possible that the knowledge that was being imparted to the primates by the original monolith was actually how to construct a mechanical organ mm -hmm. and how to grind it and mm -hmm. train humans to feed you for the privilege. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is wear a tiny hat Small humiliation. Okay, monkey talk. Now, what's really interesting with his calculations, they were for polynomials, right? Like, it, yes. was, it was a very specific application. Did he ever get to distribute this to any success? Like, were there other mathematicians seeking him out to, to help develop or potentially buy this from him or was this no. simply just a maddening self-work that he had thrown himself into now the government saw the potential but he never completed the machine so the uh, the theories of that machine lay dormant for another 100 years until someone else could access the same information and mm. finish what he started incredible someone once said a computer historian said that um, Charles Babbage was 100 years ahead of his time and very few inventors can claim, or scientists can claim, to be a hundred years <laughs> ahead of their time. It didn't do them much good, as it never does to be that much ahead of your time, but much, it does have that distinction. Much like Nikola Tesla. Absolutely, yeah, and again, you see how it ends. And one of the uh, defining features of the history of computing is that the, uh, the spoils go to the winners, and the winners are usually not the inventors of the computer, but the business exploiters. Mm -hmm. This is a purely mechanical device. Yeah. And it's interesting to me because a lot of the previous uh, calculation methods were very simple. I mean, mm -hmm. we could go as far back as Incans tying knots and ropes. Yeah. Um, abacus, like you mentioned earlier. But this is the first truly sophisticated calculating machine. And it had so much sophistication that we, that he, he, he was so intoxicated by his own discovery that he anticipated what we could do with it well before he was within his means to make it happen. Mm. So he dropped his initial project and said to the government, oh, well, I have this other thing. It's called the tabulation machine or something. And he's like, well, I have this other thing instead, which is called the, you know, the calculating machine. Well, he didn't go far enough in exploring the technicalities of his own first design to learn from it the second time in order to refine it. So he kind of ended up in a whirlpool of possibilities where he was just seeing nothing but the the implications of the future and 
all the things it could do. And so he, incredibly ambitious, set out at the end of the 18th century to create a machine that could calculate anything. And that's what Man. killed him. Man. Because he dropped the initial tabulation machine and went to basically the Douglas Adams solver of all <laughs> life's questions computer, which is not going to happen in one lifetime. No. Or even several. Or several, yeah. <laughs> but his predictions wow. are incredible. And it was 100 years later when a gentleman named Herman Hollerith picks up. And suddenly, here we are in the 1880s. is the age of the robber barons and the railroad boon in the United States. And lo and behold, the United States census is in need of a new tabulation measure uh, new a new method of tabulation all they have is human computers working at desks trying to to go through every single input of every single household in the united states so spurred on by this he realizes that he can help he can do this he can he can create something for just this purpose so based on the techniques that babbage had created 100 years before he began a new system based on punch cards and so this is the beginning of punch card computing which would continue for another 80 years the the systems that he designed were plowing through census material just cleaning up and eliminating the need for a, a lot of computer, a lot of human computing jobs. I mean, so this must have, have been like the astrolabe of the potential of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is something that would free up so much time and so much manpower yeah. from all these calculations. And what they found was, is that, you know, to function maintenance them too. And that absolutely. I'm sure they had to have a little oil. Yes. <laughs> Every now and now then. Now a world that's shifting what the math says productivity should be. Assistant and now efficiency. there's a new efficiency. Because before that, with human computers, there was a certain understanding. It's like, look, and people are people. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be a certain number of mistakes in every spreadsheet. There's sure. Certain you know, every time the manifest comes back from shipping, there's going to be errors. But now that's not acceptable anymore. And because you're saving all that time, then what the hell are you doing with yourself? You know, go ahead and relearn this other thing now. Now, 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 now. Immediate acceleration. I bet timetables that are going through that, Topeka and Santa Fe, different railroad companies could benefit by this technology. But he bet um, a little bit ahead of his abilities. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the mechanism that they were working with was actually lagging behind. Mm. So suddenly he found something that was extremely beneficial in one area was not as practical in another. For business purposes, you know, that's not a good margin to be operating in. So he looked around and he saw the writing on the wall and he decided that he would sell his interest. And there was a, an up and coming company run by a Thomas Watson one of uh, the country's preeminent salesmen. My dear Watson. Well, he sold his interest to that company. And that company, of course, IBM. Incredible. That's how they... So that's how IBM came to be in the computing. <clears throat> My mind just exploded. <laughs> that's and so Tom good. Watson Jr., the son, will come up in our story later. But... And then we jump to World War II. <laughs> Where the next great innovation comes in so many things. Goodness gracious. We've got what a lot of people would consider to be the beginning, the initial. I mean, the, this gentleman is the father of artificial intelligence. Yes. I mean, we've had automatons. We've had, you know, close, close attempts. But this was the first true birth of artificial intelligence. And Mr. Alan Turing, coming from like an already incredibly established resume, of cracking the Enigma code, you know, creating machine learning, artificial intelligence, the Turing test. I mean, the list goes on. This gentleman truly took computing into like a modern age that we would recognize 
absolutely. And, and the way he came about it was interesting, too, because his, his primary... It wasn't that AI was an offshoot of his uh, research into computing. It was exactly the opposite. He became fascinated with the, the possibility of creating artificial intelligence, and that led him into the computing field to make it happen. And it was all based on his initial fascination with the brain, with psychology, with the cause and effect of the human mind and personality. If there's a way to calculate and simplify our everyday actions into essentially what ended up becoming a binary language, mm -hmm. um, you could take even complex situations and break them down in calculable and provable um, mm -hmm. equations. Fantastic. Thinking is a function of man's immortal soul. God has given an immortal soul to every man and woman, but not to any other animal or to machines. Hence, no animal or machine can think. I am unable to accept any part of this. Here's a person who discovered the most important thing in logic, and he invented the concept of the stored program computer, and he did these wonderful things in biology and cryptography and uh, started artificial intelligence, and he ran marathons and... and uh, but I don't know anything about this person, and, and yet here's the key figure of our century, but I don't know him, and I wish I did. Turing's ideas about computing machines emerged in 1935, when he solved a profound and abstruse problem in the foundations of mathematical logic, Hilbert's Entscheidungsproblem. The difficulty of the question, as a mathematical question, is not just about mathematics. You see, it's about what you mean by a method, a rule, a very vague word, a word you might use in everyday life, but not with a clearly defined meaning. Well, Alan Turing gave it a meaning, an absolutely precise meaning, because he thought, well, what would such a rule or procedure be? It would be something you could do mechanically, something you could do, uh, apply, let a machine work on. And uh, now, in 1935, there were no such machines. This is just an Im imaginary machine. It's a machine of, of thought. But he made it into an absolutely definite idea, and it's the idea of the Turing machine. And I can quite see that uh, it would be at one spot, at one moment, they could have seen how you could use this precise idea, and, and the whole thing would click. Turing's paper described how any logical process could be broken down into its simplest possible components, precise sequential steps that could, in principle, be carried out by a machine. Well, Turing's ideas didn't just stop at the technical field of mathematical logic. His vision was much larger than that. And the thing that really drove him on was thinking, what is a mental process? Uh, what is any process by which, by thinking, we could arrive at any conclusion at all? What are our brains doing when we're thinking? And that was the argument in the background of this paper that he then wrote in 1935 and 1936. And his argument was that any mental process, whatever, assuming that the brain works in some definite way, which it must do, it must have a mechanical basis to it, uh, then it must be something which could be simulated by a Turing machine. So he had a way of formulating what any possible mental process must be. That was his general argument. And that's the argument which looms larger and larger in his thought and is now the basis of his ideas about artificial intelligence. Computer programming is based on if-then scenarios. If you type this, then the return outcome is blank. But at this point, it was always to do with numerical assignments. Turing said, well, you know, it's all symbology here. We, we can use letters as well as numbers. And what that did was it really brought in the world of algebra to the potential of computing. Because now you have puzzles with associated values that can be then computed based on their algebraic equations. Yeah, solve for the variable. And this was a huge leap in terms of the functionality of computers because Turing saw computers not as a means to an end, but as a means to everything. There wasn't a single function. There were a myriad of functions, and they weren't just uh, in the mathematical field. It was the first time that we actually had 
solitaire on the machines. Yeah. Instead of one plus one equals two, we could actually hang out and play some games. Yeah. So the graphical user interface that we all enjoy that was responsible for the explosion of personal computing is based a lot in, in Turing's research and his desire to integrate computing and psychology and making the process more intuitive, more personal. He, he was never afraid of calling it the electronic brain. Everybody else was like, okay, look, you know, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to scare people and saying that we're creating this Frankenstein monster thing. It's not a brain. It's a computing device. It's a tool. It's something that we can use. It's nothing to be afraid of. Turing's like, no, 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 no. Conceptually speaking, it's an electronic brain. We can program it with anything at a certain point. And his predictions, and we're going to play a little game later, his predictions about the future have come true largely to his belief that application of computing is infinite. And he's not wrong. <laughs> Little did he know. <laughs> Little did he know. I guess and you're wondering how your life. <laughs> Alan Turing. Oh. This is your life, a program for all America. And now here he is, Mr. This is your life himself, Ralph Edwards. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us on This Is Your Life. So how do we how do we get here, right? So how did how did the Bletchley Park, the Bletchley Circle begin? We're looking at encryption on such a top secret level, so many lives on the line, an entire atlas of destruction going on. It's the World War II Enigma code. Enigma machines were produced by the thousand and used by the entire German military system. Every U-boat carried one to receive operational orders. To stop the U-boats, Enigma had to be broken. The Enigma machine was the encryption device that they used to send these messages back and forth on the war front. The Germans. The Germans used, and this would give them troop location information, uh, mission status updates. They're going to be looking at uh, potential strikes, mission intelligence that can't be compromised due to being captured over radio frequencies or any kind of physical paper documents that could be confiscated by, you know, the allies. That, that's the whole thing was a big game of keep away. Mm -hmm. uh, intelligence became the true tactics of the time for the first time in a long uh, list of battles. You know, we had really just been standing right across from each other and shooting until we were, you know, either the winner or the loser. Yeah. And with this birth of, you know, encrypted data, all kinds of subterfuge going on on both sides, to get these messages deciphered. Enigma was the most advanced enciphering device of its time. It encoded messages via an electromechanical system incorporating moving wheels or rotors. A character typed on the keyboard was sent through the rotors electrically and the code equivalent read off an illuminated panel. The rotors changed their relative positions during encipherment to scramble the patterns a code breaker looks for. The cipher circuits also went through a plug board which switched letter pairs. Rotor and plug board configurations were changed at regular intervals, sometimes daily. The code breaker's task was to identify the start positions of the rotors and unravel the plug board setup. The difficulties were formidable. Uh, Bletchley Park was the base where a lot of the fundamental uh, decryption methods and mechanical implementations that were needed were developed. Um, and a lot of it by our good man, Alan Turing. One of the consultants to work with Alan Turing was a man named Irv. <laughs> Dr. I.J. Good. One can say how many different possible states there were for the machine which was of the order of 10 raised to the power 19. In other words, a one followed by about 19 zeros, if my memory is correct. And I think the U-boat Enigma, which had an extra wheel, was more like 10 to the 22, approximately. 
Well, that gives you some idea, but it doesn't really give you a full idea because clearly you couldn't possibly work through all those possibilities. That would be known as the British Museum attack on, on the system, exhaustive attack. You have to break down the attack in some way, and of course that's what we were doing. And there were a thousand people on staff, right, at Bletchley Park. It was a huge undertaking. Huge campus, absolutely massive. But the idea was to crack this code, to crack, to, they, 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 because there's a Polish guy who came to the British government and said, okay, so look, if you grant me um, uh, immunity, if you grant me um, safe passage to the UK, I will tell you how the Enigma machine works. So they, uh, they uh, processed the guy, um, debriefed him, and based on that, they were able to determine how the machine worked. And how the machine worked was unfathomable to anybody that was trying to break it down because they were actually resetting the codes all the time. The, if anybody works the cryptic crossword, you know that, you know, K equals I or something like that. There'd be one uh, constant and then you have to work out all the other letter associations. Well, imagine doing a cryptic crossword where every 10 minutes K equals something else. It's impossible to figure out without a computer. So you have to build a computer to then run through the same, run, to, to be able to run through the, uh, the statistical probabilities of a code. The key to cracking this machine was to find a ratio. They, they started seeing patterns in the messages and certain letters were being used more than others. There had to be a correlation. And then through reverse engineering, they started to suspect that it was a randomizable, um, you know, message scrambling apparatus. And this was all kind of imparted by these special rotors that could be set at the time of the message. And that was key to deciphering the message. There was hardly any correlation between uh, intercepted communique. So what you what you would have to do basically is try and figure out a, a portion of the code and then apply that to the rest of it to find out statistically if it holds up. Mm -hmm. And just to keep everyone on their toes, it would do just extra rotation and this would just completely scramble you know, reverse engineers trying to decipher. So basically like a reset. Function. It'll almost add like an oh. extra letter to these oh. to these messages. And that's why it was so perplexing. Well, it's no wonder that the Germans were so confident that this was uncrackable. Mm -hmm. They realized that, and this is very basic first steps, obviously. They realized that there must be a machine allowing these messages to be encrypted and scrambled. Right. They find one in the field. Some poor German soul drops one after being cut down or someone smuggles mm -hmm. one out via some kind of espionage attempt. They get the machine, but that doesn't do them any good. But there's codes listed every day, you know, some kind of radio frequency or something like that. Uh -huh. Three letter code that you would set your rotors to and cipher and decipher incoming and outgoing messages. Mm -hmm. But they would change that code every day. Talk about a hard one to crack. Really? It had and to have just look like gibberish. That. Yeah. You would get the Will Shorts Puzzle Maker of the Year Award. You know, some of World War II has to do with the hubris of Nazi party officials. Um, and thank God for it. <laughs> the unique thing about King's College uh, that Turing must have found as soon as he arrived here is that it gave a particular kind of atmosphere of moral support for anyone who was homosexual, as Turing was discovering that he was. Uh, and there were well-known figures there who one reads about, people like Maynard Keynes and so forth, who were well-documented well in their relationships. But it wasn't just that. It's a real sense of moral seriousness, that one should be what one, what one is, and that that's the right thing to be and the right thing to feel. But for Turing especially, he has a very fresh view of everything. He, he didn't see things in the conventional way. He, he always had to try to get a different look at everything, and that was the secret to his intellectual work. And uh, this sense of, of differentness and unorthodoxy is all part and parcel of his, uh, his sexuality and of his intellectual life as well. We all know that Alan Turing was gay. He fell in love in school, 
and the man that he fell in love with, you know, he never reciprocated. expressed his feelings. Exactly. The guy never reciprocated, and so Turing never expressed his feelings. The yeah. guy ended up being killed. Turing internalized that grief, and to his grave, I think. Um, one of the interesting things that one could argue was that Turing was maybe trying to recreate his lost love mechanically. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> That's powerful. Because the way that Turing, if I'm not mistaken, the way that Turing finally came to the conclusions, the revelations about how to crack this code was taking a shower and thinking not what he would do, but if he were in charge of the project, very much in the native tradition of think like a fish to catch a fish. It was precisely Turing's empathy that allowed him to crack the code. And in many ways, it was his background, his life, his psychology that allowed him to program the computers with the sensitivity of a human creating another human, a Dr. Frankenstein, if you will, someone looking to, to fill a hole in his own life. So if it weren't for Turing's empathic humanity, you know, we may not have been able to crack the code of the worst force of dehumanizing of the 20th century. So in other words, the very aspects of his character and his nature that would have put him in a camp, a death or concentration camp in Germany were the very qualities that allowed him to overcome them and crack his code, crack their code. Even if it were solvable, the amount of time it would have taken to solve it would mean possibly the loss of the war. Yeah. And, you know, the Bletchley Park uh, management kind of realized this because at first they were mostly record, uh, recruiting people that were, you know, just as general as, as professors in certain mm. fields or um, crossword mm. puzzle fanatics, people that were really good at puzzles of any sort. And then when they finally discovered uh, that it was an electronic machine doing the ciphering, that's when they decided to start recruiting mathematicians. And, mm -hmm. you know, really fundamentally, once they discovered the machine, put the right team together, it was just a matter of time. See, that's interesting because matter of time within, I mean, so the machine that they were actually building day and night in Bletchley Park to try and crack this code was an incredible computer which had inordinate influence on everything that has come since called the Colossus. She took up several rooms, right? Like it was one of the big boys. Several, several rooms. And this was, you know, what we picture as the first computers with these huge towering stacks of transistors and, uh, you know, switches and knobs abound. I mean, this thing was not very sophisticated in a way that we would consider computers, uh, you know, taking the workload off of us. This computer needed everybody to put as much quality work into it as possible. Absolutely, everybody needs to, and, and, and day and night too. It's a 24 hour, there's a day shift and a night shift working on these things because the, you know, war doesn't sleep. We're at the precinct so, working in shifts. And this is all vacuum tube. No, wait, is, are we vacuum tubes yet? Yeah, we got vacuum tubes. Okay, so it's a vacuum tube based. Uh, how how? But the vacuum tubes themselves, I mean, like the those are probably popping all the time too. Constantly, constantly, and they also were using um, a similar device, I believe. Forgive my pronunciation. I think it's a Firetron, and this was essentially just a a switch on off switch and rectifier like a like a very early early um transistor uh, in a way but mm. these were also gas glass go good lord <laughs> <laughs> glass gas filled globes <laughs> mm -hmm. these are also glass gas filled globes that connected to the machine um essentially helping with 
stepping down uh, some of the input uh, voltage. The technology of the tubes themselves, or was that after? No, excuse me, that was during ENIAC where they developed the, uh, the higher capacity tubes that could withstand more heat and not pop as quickly. Okay, no, excuse me, no, that's later on, that's post-war U.S. So back to, back to Bletchley, they finally cracked the code, they finally caught this tiger by the tail. The last thing they want to do is tip the Germans off to the fact that they've cracked the code so that the Germans go and change it. So they have to make the hardest decision of all, picking your battles, literally. If they had acted on every piece of information and every tip, they could have saved a lot of lives that they didn't. But who knows how much it could have prolonged the war because they, they, they had to act as if, they had to act, they had to react, they had to react as if they were a competent adversary without tipping off the fact that they knew what was happening in advance. And if they had been curbing every military offensive at every given point, the Nazis would have immediately figured out that their code was in jeopardy. So the only option that they had was to process the events that they were hearing to come over the line and determine which ones were of strategic use and which ones were not. And this is painful stuff. This is the worst, hardest part of war in so many ways. That people were having to make the decisions about when and when not to intervene. You know, we're, there are many of us whose families would have been different, whose lives would have been very different. Uh, family members who could still be alive if not for the intervention that they chose not to make. But by potentially saving hundreds of lives in the short term, it could have increased the war on the Eastern Front by a number of years if they had tipped off the Nazis that they were, that they knew the code. So they had to wait and use these opportune moments only in situations where the intelligence would would benefit them and also strategically seem consistent with the Allied playbook at that point. Yeah, yeah, because they could have easily just created a Mark IV. I can't remember how many iterations of it they created, but yeah. it would be as simple as adding one more cog, and then that would be another several years worth of development just to get Absolutely. the encryption off of it. And this weighed heavily on Turing. He yeah. was not a military man. He was a scientist. He he was hoping that we've cracked it. Let's save lives. Let's do it now. He was confused and, and dismayed by military high command. But um, in retrospect, uh, it was the command decision. And, and as tough as command decision is, you know, that's that's where human life becomes tactical and and British High Command knew the importance of the top secret nature of the work at Bletchley Park, and they could not risk the, the, the undoing of all of that work by saving individual squadrons or, or even lots of troops in a single uh, maneuver, which um, was not strategically advantageous to hitting the Nazis harder in the long term when a bigger plot was concocted and developed and read along the lines of the code that they had just deciphered. <laughs> what is going on out there? Uh, it's like, um, it's just the two of us and this damn dog on the moon. They told us no um, dogs on the moon. They specifically yeah, told us no which, dogs on the moon. Know, which was and a, no children think, on the bridge. We said absolutely no children on the bridge. I don't know who the hell brought their dog to Clavius base, but we only have like three snack machines. And the only, we were hoping that they would be restocked while we were gone, but there's still only three packs of bugles and one really stale bag of Andy Caps hot onion things. I think the dogs have been in the handicap mm -hmm. hot fries. 
That's unfortunate because that's the only shelf-stable option that we've had for the last six months. Yes, it's true. <laughs> By the way, uh, everyone stop sending mayonnaise. Mayonnaise does not keep on lunar refrigerators, just so you know. I don't know if there's not enough gravity or what, but the eggs separate and they go to the top. The reform is yeah. just not possible there. It is just a, a constantly shifting mass of congealed liquids. Bulbous sulfuric things. It's great. Is that a Black Hawk helicopter? Yeah, so apparently Space Force has decided to land. Um. Oh my god! Someone's delivering Little Debbie's on the other side of the base. We've never had this problem before. No, no, this is ridiculous. This is the last time we let someone run the base while we're gone. Yeah, yeah, the sign-up sheet, we're not passing that out anymore. You have to email us now. I think some reason people use the sign-up sheet a lot of times because they want to come to the base to do their laundry. The problem with the space station is you can do your laundry, but there's an innate spin cycle. And, you know, it just, it takes forever. You have to wait for the entire wheel to revolve once for your laundry to spin. Did, did I also mention that monoliths affect other animals too, like small mammals? I think this may be what's happening is the dog has dug up another monolith. Mm. You know what that means. It's going to get marked for man territory. <laughs> well, that too. I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I just thought, man, if that dog pees on that monolith, the, the shrill alarm is just like, that alarm is gonna be piercing. I'm gonna, we are not gonna get any sleep all night if the dog keeps peeing on the monolith and setting off the alarm. Is that well, an alarm? Like the, is that an that's alarm? That's an alarm. That's 100%, it's like the Rogue One alarm. That is too much. I'd like, I, I almost wouldn't believe you, but <laughs> that's unreal. It's the dogs versus the children versus the carjackers out here. That's the other thing. The parking lot on Clavius Base has become completely untenable. I don't know what's, we cannot apparently trust private contractors anymore because they keep stealing catalytic converters off of every vehicle in the parking lot. I just see these heat shields, just this big stack of heat shields. It's terrible. No wonder nobody's coming back. No wonder we're stuck here. No wonder we can't get any more bugles. I don't know if you've noticed last time you took the shuttle out, but um, I, I'm pretty sure we've been hit as well. Oh. Running a little loud. From Clavius Base. This is Brad. And I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.